Last week we started a new series um, on the book of Galatians. And the, the book of Galatians, in a sense, is about the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The sufficiency of the gospel to free us from sin, from the law, or living by rules, to free us from the fear of death, and to free us from the wrath of God. And in other words, the, the book of Galatians tells us that the gospel comes fully loaded. Okay? Comes with all the options, it comes fully loaded. And we cannot subtract from it or add to it. All right? If we do that, we distort it, we ruin it. And there's the problem. Something in our hearts want to add to the simple gospel. Right? The simple gospel is verse 4, which says, He gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And there's something in us that says, is that it? Is there something I need to do? I I need to contribute something to that? And we can't, right? We can't contribute anything to it. We want to, but we can't. We think there's something that we must do in order to climb into God's favor or to gain extra blessing from him. And it seems so natural, but it's actually antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the controversy that we see Paul addressing here in the book of Galatians. After a very short introduction last week in the first five verses of chapter one, we are plunged right into controversy. Okay, usually... Paul spends a good portion of the first chapter commending his readers, like in the book of Ephesians or Philippians, commending them for their faith or their love or their service or some other spiritual virtue, but not so in the book of Galatians. He jumps right in, headfirst, into controversy. Galatians is by far Paul's most confrontational letter, hands down. I mean, he, he speaks in a confrontational tone throughout the book of Galatians. And it's important for us to see this. It's important for us as believers in Jesus Christ to understand why Paul is so confrontational and what he's confronting, because it is a problem that we've seen in the church from the time of the New Testament all the way to today. The reason for the aggressive tone in Paul is because some false teachers have come in, They are spreading teaching that is like cancer, it's poisonous, and it's begun to to trouble the people in these churches that Paul planted. And of course, the New Testament's not immune to this. The New Testament addresses the issue of false teachers over and over and over again. The destructive nature of false teaching is addressed throughout the New Testament. In fact, every single biblical writer addresses this. All of the gospel writers do, right? They quote the words of Jesus, and Jesus certainly addresses the issue of false teachers and false teaching. Paul addresses it. Peter addresses it. James addresses it. The apostle John addresses it. Jude addresses it. They all address this issue. False teachers and the poison of false teaching, they are an assault to both God's truth and to God's people. And so... uh, we need to hear what Paul has to say here in the book of Galatians. Uh, Paul, anticipating in, in Acts chapter 20, Paul had been with the church at Ephesus for a long period of time, and then he's about ready to leave, 
and he pulls all of the leaders of the church at Ephesus, the elders together, and he has a word of warning for them. It's in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 to 31. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And he says, therefore, be alert. Be alert. Peter, writing to Christians later in the first century, near the end of his life, sometime around A.D. 62 or so, writing in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, says this, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and they will bring upon themselves swift destruction. Of course, both Paul and Peter and all the others, they're simply following the lead of the Lord Jesus, who said things like this, like in Matthew 24, when he said, Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Later in the chapter, he says, false prophets are going to come, they're going to to do signs, wonders, and miracles, have teaching, and they're going to lead away even the elect if possible. So the history of the church from the first century to today is replete with examples of false teaching. And so Christians in every age have needed to heed the warning that Jude gives us in Jude verse 4 to contend for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. So here's what's going on. Paul hears of this alien message that has infiltrated the churches of Galatia. He's heard of this alien message and he immediately writes to bring correction. He wants to address the teachers, he wants to, the false teachers, he wants to address their false teaching and he wants to bring correction to the churches. Paul had planted these churches, it's modern day Turkey, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, somewhere around AD 47 or 48. He had planted these churches during his first missionary journey in Acts chapters 13 and 14. And so it's personal for Paul. These are are churches that he had invested, that he had planted. These are people he knew and experienced life with and loved dearly. Paul loved Christ. He loved the gospel and he loved these people, so he pulls no punches. He comes out swinging. We see these words, I mean, he comes out swinging. He leaves no doubt as to what he is communicating to these people. So what was this cancerous teaching? What was this poisonous teaching that was spreading in Galatia that provoked Paul? Well, the false teachers, they were not denying that you needed Jesus. They didn't deny the need to believe in Christ. In fact, they said, you do need to believe in Christ. They preached what I would call a Jesus and gospel. You need Jesus and. You need Jesus and you need to be circumcised. You need Jesus and you need to follow the Mosaic law. You need Jesus and you need to follow the... Uh, adhere to the days and months and seasons of the Mosaic Law. You need Jesus and. To be saved, to be blessed, to be favored by God, you need Jesus and something else or lots of other things. 
a uh, British preacher named John Stott in the 20th century described the false teacher's theology in this way. He said they did not deny that you must believe in Jesus for salvation, but they stressed, he said, note the word stressed, that you yourself must finish by your obedience to the law what Christ begun. You must add your works to Christ's work. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. You must finish what he did not finish. This is the false teaching Paul is addressing here. And what follows from this kind of thinking is that God loves and blesses and saves us based on what we do. It's legalism. It's moralism. And I would say it's the default mode of the human heart. So it's not just something that was a problem back then. It's something that's been a problem since then to this present day and will be until the Lord comes again. This idea, and even as believers, we say we're saved by grace, the sufficiency of Christ, it's enough. Christ is enough. He's my all in all. And then, and then we slide back into this place of, I am favored and blessed and loved based on what I do rather than, what I'm, what, rather than based on what Christ has done. It's this idea that God sees something in me that prompts his grace. You guys, this isn't a slippery slope. It's a sheer cliff. Okay, it's not a slippery slope. It is a cliff. Paul says later in the book of Galatians, we'll cover it down the road. He says in Galatians 5, verses 2 and 3, he says, if, if, if you, if you want to add your work to what Christ has done, Jesus will not benefit you at all. He says, if you want to add your work to what Jesus has done, then you are placed back under the law and you had better keep it perfectly. And the problem is, of course, no one can, not even for a day, probably not even for an hour or five minutes. Perfection? We can't do it. We need Christ. So Paul sees this false teaching as a savage assault on the gospel. He sees it as a savage assault on the gospel. We might say, big deal. Is it that big of a deal? Paul sees it as a big deal. And so he responds to this assault in four ways. He responds with amazement that the churches in Galatia are tolerating it. This false teaching. Second, he responds with clarity on the gospel. Third, he responds with a fierce warning about the false teachers. And fourth, he responds by making his motive clear. So first, he responds with utter amazement. Paul starts in verse 6. I am astonished. I'm amazed. I am shocked. He's shocked that these Galatian churches are tolerating such a message. Notice Paul says that this waffling on the gospel has happened so quickly. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. As I said before, the the, the, the church of Galatia, the churches of Galatia were probably established <clears throat> around 47 AD. The book of Galatians was more than likely written in 48 AD. 
Paul had preached the gospel to them. They had received it with joy and gladness. God was doing amazing things among them. We see in Galatians 3 that God is doing miracles among them by the power of his spirit. And in a short period of time, a year or less, they were already deviating from the gospel. They were already turning away from the truth of the gospel. The term Paul uses is deserting. I am, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. Deserting means to transfer your allegiance or a transfer of allegiance like a soldier defecting from one side to the opposing army. So it's more than merely drifting a bit, but it's an act of treason. To desert, to defect is an act of treason. Paul says you are defecting. It's important to notice, however, that it's in the present tense, suggesting that the defection is not complete. Right? He says, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting. It's not complete. They hadn't completely deserted, but they were on their way. It's like, it's as if Paul's saying, you are deserting and you will continue and you will complete your desertion if you don't change your view and come back. Here's what's going on. Paul brought the gospel. They were running well for a little while in the gospel truth. Some false teachers came in with a new message. They hadn't fully accepted this teaching. They had not fully accepted it. Right? They hadn't deserted completely. They hadn't fully accepted it, but they were tolerating it. Isn't that how it starts? We tolerate a little deviation from the truth. This is how it happens. This is how entire denominations fall off a cliff. They tolerate a little deviation from the truth. And they tolerate a little bit more. And they tolerate a little bit more. And they tolerate a little bit more. And all of a sudden, they are believing a completely different message than the Bible presents. These believers were tolerating. They were a tolerant bunch. That's a buzzword in our culture, isn't it? Tolerance. Of course, tolerance is rightly understood, right? We should tolerate each other and we should put up with each other. If we didn't, we just would kill each other, I suppose, or kill our, you know, we'd, everyone would be killing each other. We should tolerate each other. But Paul is saying, there you have no business to the churches of Galatia tolerating this false message. He can't believe they're doing it. And why? Well, look at what it's leading them away from, or rather, who it's leading them away from. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. It's not like like holding to certain doctrine for doctrine's sake. Doctrine is massively important, but good doctrine is important because of who it leads us to, of who it connects us to. Paul is saying, I am astonished, shocked that you are deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. I am shocked you are deserting the God and Father who called you 
in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. This is such a rich statement. Him who called you in the grace of Christ. The word called here, um, you know, there, there are two ways the word called is used in the New Testament. One is just kind of a general call, a general gospel call, you might say, where a preacher gets up and preaches the gospel and then just gives a general call to the audience or to an individual, repent and believe in Christ. I do that. We do that here. I do that down at Bethel Mission every month. I realize I'm preaching predominantly to unbelievers there. I preach the gospel and I say, everyone here, repent and believe in Jesus. That's the gospel call. I think Paul has something else in mind here when he says, him who called you in the grace of Christ. It's what theologians often call the effectual call of God. Where it's not the general call that people hear with their physical ears and take it or leave it, right? They can decide to accept or reject what you have to say. The effectual call, and I think what Paul's talking about here, is where God, by the power of his spirit, calls an individual out of darkness into light, raises them from the dead, and gives them capacities they didn't previously have to respond to Christ. This is something God does. Not the preacher. This is something God does. A sovereign powerful act of salvation. If you believe in Christ, there's a time when God called you and gave you the gift of repentance and faith and you believed in Christ. Paul is saying, this gracious God, he's your father. He called you in the grace of Christ. I'm, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him. Paul, here in verse 6, is essentially saying, I taught you about grace and freedom from the law and from sin and from God's wrath, that you should be free in Christ and no longer slaves. This is the true gospel. And he says, why are you allowing yourselves to be carried away so easily from this living fountain of life and grace? Why? Paul's amazed. But he doesn't stop there. Paul also wants to clarify a gospel issue. He wants to bring some clarity on the gospel. Verse 7. Verse 7 says, Not that there really is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. At the end of verse 6, Paul says, You are turning to a different gospel, but immediately in verse 7, he wants to clarify and say, Not that there is another one. It's not that there really is another message of good news out there. There isn't. There's only one gospel. There's only one way of salvation. It's only found in Christ. It's only that which was handed down to the apostles that we have in the New Testament. This is the only gospel. But these false teachers have come in and were troubling the churches. The word word that Paul uses here, trouble, it means to agitate or to stir up or to unsettle or disturb. And this is what they were doing. The Galatian believers had received the gospel from Paul. He came and preached the gospel. They believed in Christ and they thought, I am resting in my Savior. I love this new life I have in Christ. They are trusting in Jesus alone for their security and their assurance and their salvation. And all of a sudden, these super Christians come in. 
and they say, oh, you believe in Jesus, huh? The Galatians say, yes, we believe in Jesus. It's great. And they say, oh, well, that's good. You, do, you need to believe in Jesus. But you also need to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses. And you also need to observe the Sabbath. And you also need to observe months and days and years. You also need to do these other things. All of a sudden, these Galatian Christians were like, huh, do we? If you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be blessed, then you need to do these things. If you really want to be in this, I don't know if these these guys were saying this, but if you want to be in this upper echelon of Christianity, you'll do these other things. And these Christians in Galatia were troubled and you could fill in the blank. You could say, if you, re- if you want to be saved or if you really, really want to be blessed, you need to be baptized. You need to read through the Bible in a year. You need to pray every day. You need to do all these things. We add one thing after another to the go- good things, but we add one thing after another to the gospel. And these believers were becoming unsettled. These believers fairly young in Christ, were probably thinking to themselves, oh, I thought I just needed Jesus. I thought it was just about Christ. And so these, this false teaching was brought in, which troubled the Christians, and was also distorting the gospel. It, was, it troubled the Christians and distorted the gospel. Now the word distort here probably a little different than the way that we would normally use it. It actually means to turn something around and make it its opposite. It's actually a word used that, that Peter uses in Acts chapter 2 when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost and he's quoting an Old Testament prophecy and he says, the sun shall be turned to darkness. Turned. Paul says these false teachers, they are distorting the gospel. They are, they are turning the gospel around. This different gospel is apparently no gospel at all. Rather than being good news, ends up being bad news. Very bad news. I mean, imagine, imagine hearing the news that through faith in Christ alone and nothing you add to it at all, you are free, forgiven, justified, have eternal hope. And then all of a sudden someone comes in and says, oh, by the way, you know all that Jesus-only stuff. Hold on, hold on. We need to add this and this and this and this and this and this. All of a sudden the good news, or what you thought was good news, sounds like really bad news. And that's what was going on. They had turned the gospel. They had distorted it and turned it so that rather than being the gospel, it actually ended up being an anti-gospel. This pious addition to the gospel of Christ makes it no gospel at all. Or as Paul says, not another. It's really not another. The New Living Translation paraphrases verse 7 this way. It says, you are already following a different way that pretends to be good news. But it is not good news at all. 
You are being fooled by those who twist and change the truth concerning Christ. It's a pretender. It's a pretend gospel. There's no other gospel. There's only one gospel. Reed touched on the, Reed didn't touch on it. This was his message last week. We see Paul explain the gospel in verses four and five. It's, sim, it's, it's, well, he gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory. The gospel is about what Jesus has done according to God's plan for God's glory. What do we add to that? How can we add anything? What do we add to this? We just come empty-headed and say, yes, thank you, and receive it and live in the joy of it. So often, gospel presentations are nothing more than good advice. But the gospel means good news, not good advice. Good advice might be good advice, right? You might get some good advice on how you can get along better in the world and in this life. And, and, and the Bible gives us good advice. But if it's not grounded in gospel, and it's called gospel, all of a sudden it turn, turns into anti-gospel. The gospel is about promise to be received by faith alone. The gospel is about God's purpose, Christ's work, God's glory. Any talk of gospel which puts the onus on you and I to make something happen or complete it is no gospel at all and ought to be rejected completely. This leads us to Paul's fierce warning. And Paul is an apostle of Christ. He asserts very, very strongly his apostolic authority here. The the, the purveyors of this anti-gospel are called out. Okay, Paul gives a strong warning in verses 8 and 9. Let me just read them again. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul never speaks so harsh as he does here. I mean, anywhere, I don't think, then he speaks harshly and directly and straight up. He calls out these false teachers and speaks about what their end is. He uses hyperbolic language to make a strong point. He says, he says this, if I come, I mean, Paul's the one that brought them the gospel the the first time. He says, if I come with a different message than I did before, I'm accursed. If those who are with me, if they come, if Barnabas or one of my other co-workers comes with another gospel, accursed. If an angel from heaven comes with a contrary message, accursed. And then he says, if anyone comes with a contrary message, accursed. 
if it's your mom or dad. I mean, someone that you love, right? So why would they come with a bad message, right? If anyone comes with another message, accursed. The word accursed, it's a Greek word, anathema. It means to be devoted to God for destruction without hope of being redeemed. Paul repeats this divine curse, and that's what it is. It's a divine curse. He he repeats it twice for emphasis. Right? He says it once. He says, as I said before, I'm, I'm going to say it again. You know, when we write an email or a letter or something like that, we do certain things to emphasize what we want to get across. We might underline a word or all capitals or exclamation points or, you know, if we're typing, I suppose, in italics or bold, all of those sorts of things. Ancient writers would use this technique of repeating something for emphasis. That's what Paul's doing here. These teachers, false teachers, are bad news, and Paul wants the Galatians to know that they're bad news. I thought about this yesterday, or maybe it was Friday, probably Friday. I said, why do people buy into false teaching? And, and I, think everyone, I think all of us here should say, I am not immune from the possibility Everyone here, if we think we're above that, we are probably, will succumb to it the easiest. Why do people buy into false teaching? Well, I think it's because of the appeal of their teachers. It's the appeal of the teachers. I think Paul alludes to this in 2 Corinthians when he's writing to the the church at Corinth and, and, and there were these, Paul sarcastically called them super apostles. You know, but these super apostles were saying that Paul was unimpressive and, you know, he was weak and had a weak presentation and weak appearance. And these guys apparently were, had strong presentation and strong appearance and maybe spoke with great bombast. And, and the, the, the church, church at Corinth, they were impressed. And they bought into what they said. They, Paul says, you receive what they say readily enough. You just accept it. I think people buy into false teaching because of the teachers. They look and sound so good. They, they're so nice. They seem so devoted or so zealous. They have such charisma, such a powerful presence and presentation. They're so smart. They're very attractive. Maybe they appear to be successful. Paul says, none of that matters at all. It doesn't matter at all. One bit. Not even a little bit. Not even a millimeter. It doesn't matter at all. Paul says, what are they saying? What's their message? What are they preaching? Let's think about this for a bit, just for a moment, okay? An angel appears to us this morning, bright and shining. I mean, like 1,000-watt light bulb. I don't know if that, I think that's pretty bright, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, like blinding us. I mean, he appears to us. He has light coming out of his fingers. 
if angels have fingers, I think they have fingers. He has light coming out of his ears and eyes. I mean, just light emanating from him, so bright that it's blinding us. And this angel says to you and I, Jesus Christ has sent me. I have a message from him for you. What should we do? We should not sit there with our mouths hanging open like we might initially do, right? With our mouths, our jaws hitting the ground and just think to ourselves, whatever this angel says, I am in. Paul says, I think, I think this is an application of, of this passage. Paul says, we should open our Bibles. We should have our Bibles open. And we should listen to what the angel says. And if the angel begins to deviate from the truth of the gospel, we should say, um, excuse me, Mr. Angel. What you're saying does not pass muster. What you're saying is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think you've been sent by Jesus. Take a hike. That's what Paul's saying, essentially. False teachers who bring another gospel are accursed. But it's more serious than that. Those who receive their message are too. Later, Paul says, well, he says, I, I think I quoted, mentioned it earlier in Galatians 5. He says, if, if, if you buy into this false teaching, if you buy into this and you do what they say to do, then Jesus Christ will not benefit you at all. It condemns those who believe the message as well. Not just the purveyors, not just those who spread it, but those who believe it, those who receive it. So false teachers assault the gospel, and by consequence, they are wolves preying on sheep. This is ultimately what's at stake. A different gospel is bad news because it dishonors God, it diminishes the work of Christ, and it it harms people eternally. And that's why Paul speaks so strongly. Now, verse 10, Paul tells us his motive. Paul's not just trying to be mean. He's not just trying to... Um, come across as strong. He's not, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't want to come across as a bully. He's not trying to, he's not speaking in hyperbolic language merely to make a point, but he's doing it with a motivation. And it's clear in verse 10 what his motive is. Paul says this, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Paul says, my motivation is not the approval of others, not the approval of these false teachers, clearly. But I think Paul also is saying, I'm not, not even looking for your approval, people of Galatia. I love you. I'm not looking for your approval, though. I am doing this for God's approval. I'm doing this to please him. Paul has been freed by the gospel from the enslaving need to be approved by man. 
And it's, it's amazing. It's kind of this paradoxical picture, but he has been freed by the gospel to become a slave of Christ. That's what, that's what he says. He says, I am a servant of Christ. If I was trying to please man, I wouldn't be a servant of, of Christ. The word servant is, most modern translations say servant. It's just slave or bond slave. He lives for the Lord's approval. And if you and I would be faithful to Christ and his gospel, we must as well. Let me ask you a question. When you hear Paul in these verses, do you think to yourself, when he, I mean, when he takes two verses to say, those who preach another gospel, they are cursed, eternally condemned. And then he says it again. Do you think to yourself, that's a little extreme. Do you think to yourself, he's making a mountain out of a molehill. Does it really matter what we believe? Do we need to get down to the details? Can't we just all say, I believe in Jesus and just leave it at that? Do we need to get to the details? Well, as they say, oftentimes the devil is in the details. And it's important to know that we believe in the true gospel of the true Christ that brings true salvation and relief and freedom in him. Here's what Paul's really worked up about. Is Christ's work sufficient to save completely? We sung about it this morning. (laughs) Right? Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He has met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy, I am telling. He has made all the darkness depart. Riches eternal and blessings supernal from his gracious hand I have received. Is the work of Jesus Christ fully sufficient Or do we need to complete his unfinished work with our work? The book of Galatians is a book to help us learn to rest fully in Jesus Christ alone. Fully in Christ alone. Martin Luther, who wrote a great commentary on this book. In fact, I'd urge you to go out and get I think you can find it for free online. Maybe Maybe you have to pay two bucks for an Amazon copy, but... He wrote a commentary on this, and near, near the beginning of the commentary, he says, I, I'm, I'm going to put it in my own words because I don't remember exactly how he put it. We need the gospel of God's free grace. We need to be reminded of it day after day after day after day after day, every week, every month, every year for the rest of our lives. Resting in Christ alone. Resting in Christ alone. Trusting in Jesus alone. Who he is, what he has done, this is our only grounds for assurance before God. 
It's our only grounds for assurance before God. If you would have complete assurance that your sins are forgiven, that you are free from the law and you're free from sin and you're free from the fear of dying and you're free from the wrath of God and you're free from this incessant inner feeling, you've got to climb this ladder to earn God's favor. If you want to be free from all of that, then it only comes through believing in the full accomplishment of Jesus alone. I heard somebody put it just recently. I can't remember who, who said it. Two religions in the world. One is human achievement. The other is divine accomplishment. We're talking divine accomplishment, right? What Christ accomplished, not what you and I can achieve. Imagine there are two men. <clears throat> two men. And they got, they're on one side of, of a lake and they got to get to the other side of a lake. And it's a mile across or two miles across. Well, it's a, little, it's, a, it's a good distance across. And the lake is covered with ice. Now, the men have been told that the ice is a foot thick. Okay? The ice is thick. You probably drive a car on that, I would assume. I don't know. But certainly, these men are safe. Okay? So these two men, they've got to get from one side to the other. Foot thick ice, they've got to walk across the, the lake or run or whatever. One guy puts on his snow boots and begins to inch out really, really slowly, just wondering if he's going to hear crack. He's like just barely inching out, just shuffling his feet, making sure that he's safe. Every once in a while, he gets down on his hands and knees and kind of pats out in front to make sure the ice isn't going to fall through. And all of a sudden, he hears this ruckus behind him. He turns around, and the other guy's just having a blast. He's running as fast as he can. He's sliding on the ice. He's woohoo! Let me ask you, which of the two men make it across the lake? It's not a trick question. <laughs> well, both do. Right? They both do. The guy that kind of fearfully inches across and the guy that just darts and has a blast doing it. The ground for their security and assurance was not in the intensity of their confidence, but in the thickness of the ice. The grounds of our assurance of salvation or of God's favor is not in what we do. It's not even in the intensity of our faith in Jesus. It is in Jesus. It is in Christ alone. It is in what he has accomplished. And when I read through the book of Galatians, and as we go through this, the book of Galatians wants to show us over and over and over and over again and convince us beyond a shadow of a doubt that the ice is really thick and that we can go through life confident in Christ, in the full, completed work of Christ. And we don't need to go through life fearful that maybe God favors me, maybe he doesn't. How have I done lately? All of that stuff that we have all done. What a terrible way to live. <laughs> like the guy inching across the lake. Oh my goodness, is it going to break? Am I going to fall and be lost forever? No, we trust in Jesus we put our faith completely in the fact that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Listen, he gave himself 
for our sins, not for our goodness or our righteousness or our potential or what he saw we might be. He gave himself for the worst of us. And not just imaginary sins, the real sins, the mountainous sins that we've all committed. He gave himself for our sins, all of them, every single one. He didn't leave one out, not that one that you're not sure he can deal with. He dealt with all of them. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us. So the ice is thick. We can go through life confident and free in Christ. And we can approach death with confidence and peace in Christ. Not like the Galatian churches, troubled that maybe we haven't done enough. So is all your hope in Christ today? Is all your hope in Jesus and not at all, not even a tiny bit in your contribution? Is all of your hope in Christ? And there's an old hymn that says, my faith has found a resting place. I um, stumbled across it not too long ago. And there's a refrain in the song that says this. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Is that enough? To carry you through life in the arms of the Savior? I need no other argument. I don't need another plea. It's enough that Jesus died, that he died for me, that he gave himself for my sins to rescue me from this present evil age. Let's pray.